Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. That's my number one problem with interviewing. Not that good candidates can pass an interview. It's that non-traditional candidates will likely fail your interview. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Farhan Thawar shares with us incredible stories from his experiences going above and beyond to recruit and find talent in non-traditional ways. Like the time he hacked the deep learning summer school to find all the machine learning students in Toronto. Or how he hired seven people directly from a college fair. And even how he recruited his executive assistant who was his server at a restaurant. To Farhan, speed in hiring is a massive competitive advantage. He'll share how he's built a hiring framework where 15-minute interviews result in both faster placements and better fits. Farhan is currently VP of Engineering at Shopify. Enjoy our conversation with Farhan Thawar. Farhan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Given that our episode is going to be all about the recruiting and hiring process, we'd love to dive in first to what your recruiting and hiring process with joining the, the team at, at Helpful.com. How did you become the, the co-founder? How did you meet Daniel? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, maybe I'll first off start off with how I learned about recruiting. My, my first job out of school was at a company called Trilogy uh, in Austin, Texas. And I would say most of what I learned about how to recruit was from there. Um, so happy to go into that story. But let me, let me tell you a little bit about Daniel and Helpful. So Daniel Dubow is a serial entrepreneur in Toronto. And the way I met him was that, you know, I'm not a super shy person. Um, he was actually about to do a presentation uh, on stage for this conference called the Mesh Conference, which was, I think, in 2005 or six, a while ago in Toronto. And he was literally walking up the stage to start speaking. And I walked up the stage with him, like it was super strange. And he was like, hey, what are you doing? I'm about to do a talk. And I said, hey, I, my name's Farhan. Um, I'm friends with James. We used to work together actually at Trilogy. I just wanted to say hi. And he just thought it was like super strange, one, that I was following up the him up the stage. But then two, I said the thing that I knew would hook him, which is that like James, who worked with him and is super sharp, also from Trilogy, I knew that that would get him thinking about, I want to talk to this guy more. So he actually grabbed his co-founder and said, hey, can you like skip my talk and talk to this guy outside in the hallway? And that started our, my discussions with Daniel. He ended up trying to recruit me to Ripple, which was his company at the time. Um, I ended up um, actually getting him to be a customer of Extreme Labs, where I, where I was uh, a few years later. And that's how we got to know each other as like a customer. And then when we were, when he was, uh, you know, after the Extreme Labs acquisition and he had been acquired by uh, Salesforce, he wanted to chat with me about what to do next. And so he texted me and said, hey, let's meet up on Thursday and let's chat about, uh, you know, what we're going to do next. I said, no problem. And at the time, Daniel had three kids. He has four kids now. And I have three kids. 
And I texted him in the morning, said, hey, looks like we won't be able to meet because uh, my middle son uh, was throwing up all night. I've got to take him to the doctor. Like it was that severe. Oh my God. He goes, you know, yeah. And most people would, would say, cool, let's reschedule. And Daniel <laughs> doesn't do this, right? Daniel says, where's your doctor's office? Right? Like this is the first mark of like, this is a different kind of person. So he goes, where's your doctor's office? I'm like, okay, it's, you know, not too far from my house. So I give, text him the, where it is. He meets me there, right? Which is amazing. <laughs> and we sit in the waiting room. My son's like lying, like sleeping on me basically. And Daniel's chatting. And we're just, we're actually just not chatting about anything. Just shooting the shit. Um, he doesn't come with me in the room with the doctor, but then he's still waiting there. I come out and he goes, what are you doing now? I'm going to take, I go, I'm going to take my son home to let him like, you know, sleep it off, whatever. And he goes, where's your house? Like, what's your address? I'm like, okay. So I give him my address and he has, he has his bike, like bicycle with a basket in front. And he follows, like, not follows me, but he goes to, he comes to my house on his bike. I drive home. And then when we're at my house, he kind of goes like, what are you doing now? I'm like, well, I'm going to hang out with my kid, but I got to go to the pharmacy. And so he goes, I'll walk with you. And so like, is my, my, my wife is at home and she's like, who is this dude who's like following you around <laughs> when your son is sick? And we go to the pharmacy, we come back, we're just talking about life. And then we finally go to my, my back deck uh, of my house. My son is sleeping now. I picked up some like Pedialyte or whatever. And he opens his laptop and he has a PowerPoint, like PDF presentation of, it says Furhan plus Daniel. And it's a deck he wrote about why we're starting a company, like together. And it started off with our values that we share, interesting technology ideas, the ecosystem of Toronto, all the way down to like how we would fund it, timeline over the next 12 to 18 months, equity split. Like it was insane, the amount of detail. And what was amazing about it was, one, his tenacity, right? Like he wasn't taking no for an answer, even just to meet. And then two, all the detailed thinking. He had anticipated all my questions. And then my, I went into my kitchen after him and Daniel's still on the deck. And my wife looked at me and goes, who's this guy? And I told her and she goes, you got to start a company with this guy. <laughs> like literally, right? She had two questions. Like one is like, what, like, who is he? But she also just asked another very important question, which is, if you do this and it fails, are you more or less valuable to the market? And the answer was more valuable. She goes, well, that answer combined with this dude's crazy, like you, you have to start this company. Wow. I mean, what two sort of metrics to measure the validity of, of making that decision? Your crazy matches his crazy. And on top of that, like you become more valuable. Yeah. Story. And I mean, the other thing, if anybody, you know, for people who know both of us, they know our, our crazies are quite different, right? Like the Venn diagram of our crazy overlap is very small. He is a unreasonable impatient person who sees the future and wonders why is it not here yet and i am a like maniacal like one percent a week how do we get towards that future but you know completely in, in for the completely different ways to get there i can have a follow-up question on that how do you feel as a someone being pushed recruited by daniel when he uh follows you to the pharmacy and also doctor's office in your house what's your feeling what's your response to it well, my first feeling was one awesome, because I actually am a big fan of the like go beyond what other people would normally do mantra. Like I'm a big fan of that. Two, it was surprising how closely that matches my own recruiting, right? Like when I'm working on recruiting somebody or talking to somebody, like my wife always says this about me, like you'll figure out a way. I always figure out a way, right? If there's, if there's like, hey, you need to get to so-and-so person. 
I will figure out a way to get so-and-so person, right? And when I was at Extreme Labs and I was at a party and literally I saw someone across the room, I looked it up on LinkedIn, like that's so-and-so at the party. I will like figure out a way to like roll up and casually be like, hey, and start talking, knowing full well that I'm trying to create a business relationship. Be like, oh, I didn't know you worked at Company X. Like I, I knew everything. So I will use all the tools at my disposal to like figure out a way to make that happen. And so Daniel was just using the same tactics that I would use. And that's why I thought it was, uh, it was a good match for us, right? Very similarly is how I went out and then recruited the initial the team of Helpful, right? I spent a lot of time with a few key early people convincing them that what they were doing was not going to be as impactful as what we were doing um, using similar techniques, meaning mostly being like, I wouldn't consider it to be aggressive, but very assertive. It was very assertive, right? He wasn't forcing himself. He's just like, where are you going? What's the address? Like he wasn't being overly, he was just being very assertive. And I like that. Yeah. Do you have an example that you use similar tactics to recruit people into helpful? Yeah. So actually you're going to like this one. So we, we had a funny time um, hiring um, machine learning scientists because I actually didn't uh, have any background in machine learning data science. And I don't, I didn't have a network of those types of people. So there was a, um, a course, an online course called Machine Learning Summer School that was happening in Toronto, uh, the, I think a few months before uh, we were trying to look for people. And so I just found out about it. I'm like, hey, Machine Learning Summer School, this is cool. Wouldn't it be cool if we could like target all the people who went to Machine Learning Summer School? Our third co-founder, David Party, figured out that the Google form that everybody you know, used to uh, sign up for Deep Learning Summer School was open. So the, all the people who attended the summer school was open. So I was like, wow, we have this big list now of like 500 people. And I'm like, what's a really quick way to filter this down by everybody in Toronto? So I just used like Odesk, like Upwork. And I went on and I paid somebody 20 bucks. And I go, I want you to look up each one of these 500 people uh, on LinkedIn. Give me their LinkedIn profile, their city, their current title, blah, blah, blah. And within 24 hours, I had a filtered list by city of all the people who had gone to Deep Learning Summer School who live in Toronto. And then I just emailed all of them cold. And the title of my email said, hello from Deep Learning Summer School, which I had no affiliation with Deep Learning Summer School. I just literally sent it as the hello from Deep Learning Summer School. Hey, wanted to have a conversation with you about this exciting new startup we're working on. And one, one thing that was funny about that was, one, I ended up inadvertently um, emailing the organizers of Deep Learning Summer School who were very confused oops. by an email <laughs> uh, called, yeah, but, but what's the oops? Like, who cares, right? I met with them actually and they, um, I spent time with them and they invited me to all their seminar. Like, it was actually really funny. Like, when we, the first meeting was funny because I didn't know what it was about and they didn't, I, I was trying to recruit them and they were trying to recruit me into like this fold of being part of uh, Deep Learning Summer School. But I ended up hiring an engineer from that. Like, a lot of people said, hey, thanks for the reach out. I've already got a job at, you know, whatever. And a few people were just super interested in uh, machine learning. And I hired our, one of our first machine learning engineers. And he's at Shopify today because he came in through the acquisition. So um, it was very fruitful and a great way to meet like 15 to 20 people in the field, given that I didn't know the field. And it worked, right? Like it was a way to kind of get to people that uh, wasn't a way. They, they weren't available to other people because it was like a private email list, basically. That's a fun story. You pretty much use 20 bucks to hire engineer to follow you, not just at helpful, but also to Shopify. And you almost yeah. get a, a job from the school. Yeah, exactly. No, it's really, it's, I mean, I'm just saying, but that's a good example of like the normal way would be to post a job, right? That's not what we did, right? I mean, um, and, I, and I hired that engineer after like, you know, just going for a, co a coffee for like 15 minutes, right? We'll talk about my engineering process, but it, it worked out very well.
How do you think the importance of um, you going above and beyond use annual ways to reach out to uh, potential candidates? How does that make a difference from the engineer you hired from his perspective or her perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two things going on. One is, is that because we're so small, and I even think this is true even at a big company like Shopify, is the person doing it makes a difference, right? So the fact that I was doing it, right? The fact that I was meeting, like, you know, my, the joke was that in Toronto, you know, maybe even in San Francisco, Daniel or I could get a meeting with anybody, right? Like that was our thing. Like we, we can easily get a meeting. And so that was, that worked in our advantage because when I would email these people, they would look me up or look Daniel up and like, wow, these folks have done a bunch of stuff. It'd be interesting to meet them, right? So that was a good way just to make sure we got a meeting. What I, what I, when I talked to the candidates, they felt that one, because, you know, I was me, like I said, meeting them personally, not like my recruiter, not, and again, we didn't have recruiters, right? But it wasn't somebody like one degree from the person they would be working with that made it much more compelling for them to have that first meeting. So it was me reaching out, me having the coffee. I would love to meet with you for a walk, right? Like that was a big part of it. The other thing was because the process was so fast, they were using that as a proxy for how the company must run. So for example, if there's no admin and layers and long processes for how to recruit, they were using that as a proxy for, wow, there must be no layers and admin and processes for how this company runs. So they were using that as a proxy for like, this recruiting process is fast, this company must be moving fast. And that was very powerful for them to be like, wow, I wanna, I wanna work here. Right, so that's a competitive advantage for, uh, from perception perspective, knowing your company is fast moving and also related to the experience they actually gonna have after joining the team. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can give you another example of that, right? So we at you know, a company before, Extreme Labs, we hired lots of interns from the University of Waterloo. And what we did, and we have ultimately got sort of banned, or they changed the process from Waterloo, is I would go in and hire interns. And what I would do is I would have an info session. And at the info session, I would talk to candidates and I would hire them before the internship like, program even opened. So all the best engineers would end up working at Extreme Labs and they would never even enter into the candidate pool to then go work at like Google and Facebook and Amazon. And so again, I just use speed to my advantage. I had this happen many times where I had a candidate who had an had interview loop with Amazon and because our process, we're getting into a process, but because our process would end with them getting an offer the same day that they were in our office, it would be like, wow, this process is faster than Amazon. And they would sign, you know, within, like I wouldn't pressure them to sign. I would say, hey, it's an, it's an offer that, you know, you'll have about three days to decide, three working days. If you need more time, let me know. But usually they would sign within three days and that would negate them from ever even entering into a process with anybody else because they would, uh, because our process was so fast. Has the leverage of speed ever backfired? It's a good question. I mean, if you only if you believe that the, any, whatever decision you're entering, entering into is a one-way door. If you think it's a one-way door, right? Like we talk about this sometimes, like, whether it's like getting married or having a baby, company going public, like these are one-way doors, but, <laughs> but it's basically like, it's a hard thing to come back from. So you should be, you should be more sure. You should, take, you should take time on those one-day decisions. Like some companies are like, hey, let's um, publish everybody's salaries. Cool, good experiment, but be really sure because you can't unpublish everybody's salaries after. But hiring, I think somehow ha for people has this feeling of like it's a lifetime commitment. Like, me hiring somebody or them joining a company, it could be a lifetime commitment. It could, you could work with that person for 20 or 30 years in your career. 
So they should have a great experience and you should have a great relationship. But the job you're offering somebody is not a lifetime commitment. It's not high stakes, irreversible. So for all those kinds of decisions, I don't think lots and lots of time should be spent. Typically, there's probably an 80-20 there where you can get 80% of the data with 20% of the time. And my argument, as, as uh, we'll probably get into, is that I'd much rather use real world on the job performance to determine whether somebody's a fit for the company versus a proxy like conversation, interviewing, whiteboard, coding, anything else. Right. And also interviewing is not that reflective of people's performance afterwards because there are so many variables that can play a role uh, in terms of the performance of employee after being hired. Before jumping into the next question, I'd like to dive a little deeper to sort of understand when you um, use very traditional way of hiring, like leveraging speed, and um, also the example you gave about between you and Daniel, how do you balance the social norms and also being creative hiring people? Yeah, I think, I mean, over time, people got used to the fact that we were going to try lots of crazy things. Um, but at the beginning, I think it was just uh, explaining to so explaining to the team and explaining to the folks who were hired. Now, don't forget, we hired everybody the same way, so they knew what it meant. And what it looks like is the following, right? When I would give someone an offer, I would say, hey, just so you know, the first 90 days is a way for you to evaluate us and for us to evaluate you. Let's really treat it like a period in which we're getting to know each other. If you feel for any reason that you're not a fit for helpful, you should feel free to let us know, give us feedback, and like, you know, feel free to like quit in the first 90 days. And we'll do the same with you. We'll give you feedback if we don't think that the way in which we work is suitable to the way in which you work. And so it's mutually beneficial. Like anytime we let somebody go from helpful, um, they would say, oh yeah, no, no, I knew it wasn't, it wasn't working out. Like it wasn't a surprise in, in, in the best possible way. Like they're like, I knew it wasn't, it wasn't a fit. Thanks for letting me know. And uh, in Helpful's case, we actually gave them, you know, severance to help them find their next thing. That would never prevent them actually from referring friends to us to be like, hey, it didn't work out for me here, but it's a great company. You should look at it too. Because it was so transparent and explicit. You know, right. I think all companies actually implicitly already work this way. If you get a job at Facebook and you go through the, you know, I don't know what it is, 15 hours of interviews, 10 hours of interviews, whatever it is, and you don't work out and they can, you can both figure it out in the first 90 days. I hope that you would not work at Facebook after that. Unfortunately, what I think happens is it usually takes people about a year, mostly I think on the company side to figure out if somebody's not a fit, but sometimes even on the candidate side to know that, the, that they're not a fit for that company. It might take a year, in which case it's kind of like a year lost, right? Versus like three months in and out. Like people don't even have to really put it on their LinkedIn if they don't want to, right? That short. Totally. And a lot of people, surprisingly, they don't even know um, there is a service package if something goes bad. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things going on. One is, and not every company has to, right? Like I know in California law, even Ontario law, you don't have to give a severance package before within 90 days. In a lot of companies, you don't even, uh, like benef employee benefits don't even start within 90 days. So it can be a true probationary period where you're like, hey, look, um, we're going to try to figure each other out. If it doesn't work out, no harm, no foul. It's at will employment. You can kind of roll out. We opted to do severance because we felt that it was something and that helpful we did. And I know at Extreme Labs, we didn't do it because that was, you know, we were just growing so fast and there was lots of, it was a much more, uh, much more volume. So we didn't uh, do it in that company, but in helpful, we did. I think it's just good to be explicit, right? So 
as long as people understand what's going to happen in the first 90 days, the team and everybody understands that. Now, what it did was from a pipe cleaning perspective on the process is it meant that we had to get people up to speed quickly so we could tell if they were a fit. And if people were not a fit, the team had to be okay with people kind of, you know, not sticking around the organization. Now, one way you can make this less of a big deal at your company is if you have lots and lots of interns, this happens automatically, right? Because you've got people coming in for four months at a time or coming in for the summer. So you're already used to onboarding people, having them off board uh, within a couple of months of the summer. Maybe it's a four-month internship. So I'm a big fan of internships for particularly this reason because it actually helps you bring people up to speed quickly and then they uh, are offloaded uh, quickly mm -hmm. as well. And you can hire them again. You can have them come back for full-time. Like all those things are great signals for whether they'd work in your company. And so having that process set up well, if you, if you actually, here's a good test for you. If you can't onboard interns into your company within and get them productive within four months, you could probably never do this. And maybe that's a, a different problem that you want to solve. What is the thing that makes you so comfortable to leverage creativity, including? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. I mean, I'll answer it in a couple of ways. One is, for sure, the way in which I was recruited at Trilogy had a long-lasting impact uh, in my career for how I should recruit people. So there, I definitely learned about a different way to recruit. I think secondly, like use the word creative, like it's funny because I don't think of myself as creative at all. I don't think about that as like a, I, I don't think I'm a good at coming up with different ideas. I think what I tend to uh, at least try to spend my time on is starting from like first principles. Like if we have to recruit somebody, what are all the things that we, we could do to try to recruit that person, right? So, you know, another, maybe a funny example for you again is I was at a career fair many years ago and I get to the career, I get to the booth and me and uh, uh, our ops person, we get to the booth and we don't have any of our collateral. We don't have a sign, we don't have flyers, we don't have a TV screen and we don't have anything. And we're around a bunch of big companies that have all their booths set up. And what happened was we were in mobile development at the time. This is Extreme Labs. So I was lucky in that we, had, we each had two phones because we, this is the days when we used to rock around with like a BlackBerry and an, and an iPhone or Android and iPhone. We put all our phones on the table and we just stood there. And as people kind of walked by, students walked by, we would talk to them. And so I talked to some students. And what I noticed was like, I was like, wait a sec, I'm just going to ask them interesting questions. So I would ask I had a students give me their resume and I would turn the resume over and I'd write something down. I'd say, hey, you know, you're in computer science. Why don't we, you know, quickly walk through a quick problem? I just want to talk about the problem. And I would write down like a little short, like computer science problem. And then I would say, feel free to like, you know, walk away and uh, come back and let's talk about it. So people would do that and they would come back. And over the course of the day, some people, of course, when you give them a problem, wouldn't come back at all, which is totally fine. Um, and then some would come back and we'd chat. And at the end of the day, you know, all the companies that were, you know, officially our rivals, right? Because we're all trying to recruit. We all started chatting with each other because they're all taking their booths down. And they said, I went to booth A and I said, hey, how'd you do? And they said, it was great. And, you know, we gave away, you know, 50 t-shirts. Cool. I went to booth B. How did you, how'd you go? And they're like, oh yeah, you know, we collected like a hundred resumes. I'm like, awesome. And they said, how'd you do? I'm like, I said, I hired seven people. Uh, I'm like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, we came here to hire, right? And they kind of looked at me. I was like, yeah, my goal was to hire. And so to clarify, I hired people. Sorry, to clarify the folks you hired. Um, what level they are, the interns or? Yeah, in this, in this case, they were all summer students. I think some might have been new grad hires and some, I remember having seven people, some might have been new grad hires, like full-time hires, and some might have been 
interns, probably mostly interns, not one of them asked me compensation questions. They just liked what we were saying, how we were approaching the problem. And all of them showed up on Monday morning and we all, and we gave them like, we didn't, we didn't give them lowball offers. We gave them the appropriate offer for their level for an internship because we'd had so many interns. Now, none of them even knew what we did, but again, they used that speed advantage. But what was funny about that was I didn't think it was creative to like interview them on paper. And like, I didn't come up with that as a creative solution. I just came up with it. I said, what is the goal? I looked at, you know, Leroy, who was with me, my ops guy. And I said, the goal is to hire, right? So let's hire. The goal wasn't brand building, t-shirt handing out, resume collection, anything. It was hiring. So we hired. What did you do to to say, you know, I'm going to hire you? Was that a, was there an interview or it just a casual conversation? Yeah, it was the conversation. Plus they went away and did a little bit of coding, right? On a a piece of paper. Uh, And then when they came back, you should have seen their faces, right? I'm like, cool, you're hired. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, you're hired. You start on Monday. And they're like, okay. They would say like, okay, and I'm like, cool. And I said, talk to Leroy. And then Leroy, who's on an upside, would give them a bunch of information. Here's our address. Send me your email. I have your resume. I'll send you an offer letter over the weekend. Like, we're a legit company. You know, you can look up our website, like all the things. But again, I'm just trying to make a distinction between the word creative. Like, I just don't think it was creative. I think it was just, I had a, pl- I had a mission. And I was like, what are the, what's the shortest way to the mission? And now again, if none of that worked, right? If I hired zero people, I probably would have said, okay, it's not working. Let me adjust. Okay, let me instead say, come on Monday for an interview or come for a tour. Like I would have changed it, but because it started to work, I just kept going. And what's the outcome, like in terms of performance after they're being hired? So it's an internship. So um, I know for sure, I don't remember exactly because I, again, I hired a thousand people over four years at Extreme. Um, but I remember one person, but in particular, this guy, Nima, who went on to be uh, pretty successful. He worked in engineering, then he worked in product. I think he went through Y Combinator. He's now in San Francisco doing like a bunch, uh, a small startup plus uh, running like a little seed fund. So I kept in touch with him over that time. And I remember him specifically from that cohort as somebody who, I, who uh, has done well, you know, 10 years later. What do you think is the, a good indicator for performance during interviews? I don't think there is one. I think, I mean, if you, if you end that sentence with what, with what do you think is, is a good indicator of performance, the answer is performance. I don't think there's a good indicator. I think there's a lot of, there's certain groups of signals. For example, you could say, oh, you know, if you are computer science at Stanford, you might have a good chance of passing, uh, of being a good engineer at my company and, and henceforth go backwards and say they might have a good chance of passing your, your interview loop. Instead, what I wanted to find out was, how do I get all, like, how do I widen my filter to find all the best people from whatever diverse backgrounds? And The reason, you know, I think it's becoming in vogue now to talk about like diversity and inclusion, like, hey, this is good for your company, or you should do this as like a, as like a side hustle thing. I actually looked at it completely differently and said, in order for us to win, we must have the most diverse team. Why is that? Because we want to have the best, all sorts of different opinions and all sorts of different backgrounds to build the best products. So if you start with the way, the reason you want diversity is because you want to win, then you approach the pipeline and talent process quite differently than I want to have a diversity check mark. And right. so I want to make sure that we have the best team. So starting with that, you have to look beyond typical indicators like school, GPA, where they worked before. You have to instead look for interesting background. How well do they do in the actual job? How quickly can they learn? 
Do they have a history of overcoming difficulty? Like you look for those things. So one thing that's good about what Shopify does is they have this thing called the life story where we basically have people sit for 30 to 60 minutes and have a conversation with somebody about their life. And we try to dig into what difficulties have they encountered? Have they been in situations where they had to learn something quickly? Have they been in a situation where they've had to collaborate? Like all the things that we think are successful for you to be at Shopify. And we don't care if they've gone to school and if they've got a PhD and if they've worked at Google. We mostly care about the go forward potential of that person. What do you ask them during interviews? Well, so we just, we just walked through one of, the, one of the important steps, which is life story. Like we literally, we literally will say something. I think you can look this up. Like I think we've got like, there's like YouTube videos about like the Shopify life story. But basically we start and we say, let's go back to high school. Tell me about your experience in high school. What's your favorite subject? Who are your friends? Like, like literally find out about high school and find out about the potential interesting nuggets of things there that would lead them to be an interesting person. That along with then, you know, if it's technical, We'll then get into more of a conversational. Hey, tell me about an interesting system you've designed. Let's draw it out. Oh, cool. Like what was, what was interesting? Like what were some interesting parts about this system? Why did you develop it this way? What problems did it um, exhibit? What would you do differently next time? Like more conversational versus like whiteboard coding. Like, hey, you know, can you determine if there's a cycle in a linked list? Right. Do you do coding at all? During yes, we do. Yeah, so we do a pair. We also, as part of this, we'll do like a pair programming interview, which is closer to a collaboration around writing code for to solve a particular problem. Because we're Shopify, like the problem would be more like more like closer to a problem you might encounter at Shopify than like an abstract computer science question. And the person being interviewed will pair with one of your employees and yeah. do they code or they talk? So there's different ways to approach it. Um, at Shopify today, they, the candidate will code and the employee will coach them on their solution. But I've also seen in other companies, I know at Pivotal, for example, a pair programming interview there is the candidate does not write code. The candidate navigates while the interviewer writes the code. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I had a follow-up question. We've been telling, or you've been sharing with us a couple of stories about the competitive advantages of speed in the recruiting process. Can you share a little bit more about some of the, I guess, the, the results that, that you've seen in the different companies that you work with in running these experiments with reducing the barriers for bringing somebody into the company? What, what results have you experienced in, in the, the different ways that you've implemented this? Yeah, so... It's hard to know numbers at many of the companies I worked at because they're just larger organizations. But I know at Extreme, for example, we had a very succinct, short interview process. Like over time, we got it down to less than 15 minutes, for example. And I would say that about 85% of the people 
continued on at extreme after their 90 days, um, meaning about 15, 1-5% of the people. Mutually, we would chat with them, would not be a fit, and so they would not be at extreme labs after 90 days. The interesting stat, I think, is the one after that. So after you pass your 90 days, we had extremely low attrition, like less than 1% attrition for people after the 90 days, because I think there was extreme confidence uh, in the fit. They worked with us for almost 90 days, so they, they felt that they, they enjoyed the, the work environment. We felt that there was a good fit. Attrition after that was extremely low. And like I also mentioned, of the 15% of the people who left, many of them, I would say almost all of them, still a fan of Extreme Labs, would refer their friends, would talk very highly of the company and the process. And that was a major factor as well from a recruiting standpoint because nobody was walking away saying, wow, I can't believe I wasted my time. They actually said, they actually felt, you know what? Some people would say, thank you for letting me try. It wasn't even, it wasn't that they just got a chance to interview. They got a chance to try really working at the company. So, and of course, you know, working there. So you, you know, full-time, you're full-time, you get, you got paid, like everything was available to you. They didn't feel like um, they got stopped at the interview process. They felt like they got, wow, I really got, I really got a chance to try here. And uh, they knew what they had to do to kind of, you know, make it in that environment. The 15-minute interview is very fascinating. I'm sort of thinking, what if we do a, a live interview, like say we do five minutes and say you want to hire Patrick right now? You, you could, but, it, but I already know Patrick and I would already hire him. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the inter- I don't think the interview is, is that much different than what you would expect in any 15-minute conversation. Like, so, for example, in a, if for an engineer... Usually it would be three or four very short programming questions in that 15 minutes. It wouldn't be a conversation. I would more be looking for like, what's the thing that matters for an engineer to be successful? It's likely that they've written a lot of code. The real interview, again, is going to be pairing with somebody full-time over the course of like, you know, 30, 60, 90 days. That's the real interview. This is more of a, a baseline test to see if they've had any coding ability at all. Like now what's interesting is. In these very easy, like, you know, for anybody listening, it's, you know, like Fibonacci or FizzBuzz or like very easy or modifications of those, uh, of those questions would just give you a baseline for like this person has written code. Maybe surprising or not surprising to people is about 90% of the people will fail this very easy coding question. And that's by design because if you've written lots of code, if you've written lots of code in high school, you should be able to pass this, this question. And I give two or three just because usually people who've coded a lot can fly through these questions very quickly. And so if you can do two or three of these in, 30, in 15 minutes, you're well-suited to having written lots of code. Now, will you be a fit at Extreme? Maybe, maybe not. Or at, you know, at, a, at a company that um, really values engineering. But it shows you one aspect, which is written lots of code. And again, I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to have a baseline filter. The real filter comes from pairing with somebody uh, day in, day out, like 40 hours a week. What the interview will be different if you're hiring for a engineering leader? Engineering leadership is quite different because it usually takes longer to determine if somebody's a good fit. So typically you'll tend to be more conservative in your hiring. So when we talk about one-way doors and two-way doors, it's still a two-way door in that you can bring somebody on and then they may not be there. And it might take you longer than three months in some cases, because sometimes the changes and the onboarding that happen when a new, when a new engineering leader comes on might take longer to manifest themselves. So you might take 
six months instead of three months. It might take nine months or, or 12 months. But I think the same thing is true in that you really want to overweight real world performance versus um, interview performance. So right. one, of the, one of the things I work with a bunch of Y Combinator companies on them getting to you know, hi, raise a series B and then hiring a, their first VP engineering. And usually what I tell the people is, what's the, at 90 days, what are the things that you want to, what are the questions you need to ask in order to determine if this is, a, if this is a, the right hire for you? And so typically, so basically define the criteria for success first. and then Define the 90 backwards. days, exactly, the 90 day success criteria. And then for your, and every company is different. And then for that, from that list of criteria, try to design a list of questions or scenarios in which you can try to ascertain whether those would be passed, right? So for example, you might have an organization that's growing from 25 to 100 engineers. Maybe your criteria is, this person has hired three engineers in their first 90 days. So what are the things you think could be good signals to them having hired three engineers uh, within the first 90 days? Is it that some of their team is going to come over? You can ask them a question. Hey, you've moved from company to company. Uh, you've moved around a few companies. Has there, have there ever been engineers that have come with you? Or you have to hire three people in 90 days. What are the things you're going to do? Do you usually work with recruiters? Do you have a short list of great candidates already? Do you... Um, know that LinkedIn or other marketplaces have been successful for you to uh, attract engineers? Where would you job post? What talks would you do on, uh, at different various events? Because those have been ones in the past that have been good for you to recruit from. Like there's a bunch of those things that I would ask. I don't know. And that's that, during the interview or that's after they got hired? Those I, would do, I, would, I would do both. I would do definitely before if you can, because if, you, if we think that this is longer, this is a lo it takes you longer to figure that out. These are questions that potentially can help you like they may not be useful right you might ask all these questions and not get any data now because because what happens in many cases is if the person hasn't done it before like this is where interviews really suck right if the person hasn't done it before they may not have any answers right if daniel had asked me hey this company is going to really rely on machine learning how are you going to hire machine learning engineers at helpful i would not have had an answer meanwhile clearly we did a good job because we right. figured out this hack via the deep learning summer school. So the problem isn't that I didn't have the answer. The problem was that he had to make sure that I would be able to figure out the answer when I got to help. Yeah, that's hard to find out during the it's interview. Hard, it, well, it's hard to find out. And the problem with interviews in general are they're very biased to either things you've done before or they're biased to some other signal like school you went to, company you worked for. GPA in some cases, right? Google used to use that. And it excludes a wide swath of people. That's the problem. That's my number one problem with interviewing. Not that good candidates can pass an interview. It's that non-traditional candidates will likely fail your interview. Right, which and, hurts diversity eventually. Well, but I don't care about diversity. It hurts the team, right? Like diversity is a byproduct of having a great team. Mm -hmm. If you have a great team, it will be diverse. Like I think it's flipped. I feel like I think it's flipped around. I think people have to try to build a great team, and by default, it should look diverse. Like that's kind of your lagging indicator. I think it's wrong to think like, hey, we should we should try to hire a diverse team. I think the it has to be flipped. You have to say, I want to hire the best team, and it should it, it'll automatically be de be defaulted to be the if you widen your funnel. Yep. If you widen your funnel. And going back to the interview for and your and your leaders. The methodology you mentioned earlier, uh, high fast and 
leverage more on the promise of the first 90 days. But for annual leaders, the risk of letting one person go is much higher. How do you deal with that? I mean, like I said, I think it might take you longer. I mean, one thing that I always do say is that once you know that somebody shouldn't be at the organization, like I've never fired somebody too fast, meaning you can never, once you figure it out that somebody's not a fit, it, you're, you're probably better to make that happen sooner rather than later for both parties. Right, regardless whether they're engineers or engineer yeah. leaders. Yeah, I mean, once you, once you know, you know, right? Um, I think that's, that's, a, that's something that, we, that should be done more quickly and usually takes a long time. I think because it's so amorphous, like the only thing you can do, like I said, is come up with criteria that would look like success, whether it's in 90 days, six months, 12 months, and work back from that criteria to try to figure out, are there signals you can use? Now, again, if the person hasn't done it before, you'll be hard pressed to get good answers there. And I think a better way to set that up, and again, is maybe controversial, is, is to try it. Like I do, I do really feel by trying lots of things, even on organizations and people, will eventually over time make the organization more anti-fragile, right? Because if you brought in a leader, they didn't work out, you brought in another leader, they didn't work out. There's a few things to take from that. One is your interviews, like you may never be, have been able to figure that out at the interview stage anyway. So it's better to have tried that person, figured out what doesn't work again, right? I, I now figured out that this person's not a fit. Maybe that'll inform you for the next person, but you're at least trying the person versus keeping the role vacant for six months. Right. And also make a team more resilient to changes. Agree. And I think, and again, going in eyes wide open, right? Letting the team know, hey, look, we hired this new person. We're going to both spend an, uh, lots of time over the next 30, 60, 90 days. We may not figure it out in that time period, but we hope to. And here's what we're going to evaluate uh, the person on and make it transparent to the person, to you. Here is the criteria. You got to hire a few people in 90 days. You have to make a few engineering process improvements. Like come up with that list and together work through it. Yeah, I like that. And that will probably help the, you know, ICs on the team to have a better understanding of what they want from a leader after seeing someone that is not a good fit. I think you're totally right because they will have now tried in the new company people who maybe maybe some of them like worked for them but didn't work for the company. Right. And they'll get a better view into that. You may also have a, a, an engineering leader emerge from your own team to say, you know what? Right. Actually, the things that we think need to be done, I'm already doing. Maybe I should be the engineering manager. Yeah. I heard a lot of stories that um, companies at a certain size, they have an urgency to hire a senior leader, and they're looking for people with good uh, pedigree. And uh, on paper, the person they hire is supposed to be very successful on their own. But it didn't work out for things that they cannot think of ahead of time. It happens all the time when somebody with the right pedigree comes in and doesn't work out, like it happens all over the place. And that's why if you're gonna, if you're gonna take, if you're gonna go through the process anyway of bringing someone in, evaluating and then exiting them, why not work from a larger pool, right? Like that's the only thing that I'm like, why work on this small competitive market of people with the same pedigree when you could uh, be using a different market, a, like a, a less, in some ways less competitive, right? Um, maybe they haven't done it before, right? Like, I think that's the, that was the key. Like at some point, like even here's a good example, right? I had never 
I never hired like a thousand people before going to extreme, right? Like I didn't know, like who knew I, the biggest team I ran before extreme was 15 people, one five. So who knew that by trying these crazy experiments that we were able to scale the company so dramatically and that I would be able to scale along with that. Nobody knew. I think that's true of lots of lots and lots of people. The, you know, we didn't get to this, but one of the things that we're, we, we do well at Shopify is we, we look at, we do like this thing called like backward facing promotions. Like we look to see if somebody's been acting at that more senior level over a sustained period. And then we, and then we promote them versus trying to like do what like most companies do, which is like the Peter principle. Like you, you, you promote somebody and then you're like, whoa, it's not really working anymore because the person is like in a role that they, you know, are trying. And so it's a good way to be like, oh, you really want to be, you know, go from like level six to level seven. Cool. Here's all the things you got to do to act like level seven. And then if they do those things and they are sustaining it and they're enjoying it and everybody's feeling like it's successful, you can then promote them. And, if, and, and guess what? Paradoxically, they may not like level seven, which I've seen too. They're like, you know what? I can do it. I don't really enjoy it. I'm like, cool. Like just crush level six. And now there's no like demotion. There's no like title change. There's nothing. Yep. So it's, it's actually quite uh, successful. And same thing applies to the transition from a new engineer to a engineer manager. So it doesn't work out, doesn't work out, and go back to your previous role, which is a very good thing. Now it's supposed to be perceived as a demotion. Exactly. And that's why I'm actually a big fan of like the acting titles or interim titles for people to try things out. Again, I would love for people to try. I think that's the way in which people can really figure out. You can figure out if they're suited for the role, if they're ready. And I've seen lots of movement. I mean, one thing we say at Shopify is it's a, jungle, it's a jungle gym. It's not a career ladder. And a jungle gym is you go up, you go sideways, you go down, you go into a different playground. Like you try all kinds of things in order to continue your, your learning journey. And I think a lot of people just feel like it's like, oh, well, I was senior developer. I now have to become like staff developer. Otherwise, like my career is not progressing. And I've been happy to see that it's not true here at Shopify. People like, you know, we had a VP engineering become an individual, an IC. Like amazing, and it's celebrated. This is the first time I've ever heard about backwards promotion, so my mind is being blown. And it makes so much sense because it, if you want this role, act as if, and then right. your behavior then earns you that particular position. So I feel like that's such a better validation of somebody's ability to take on a leadership role or a different different skill set. And then again, paradoxically, you may not like it. <laughs> like it happens. Yeah. People are like, you know what? Actually, I did the things. And, you know, like, for example, I had to work cross group and I got this project going, whatever, and it was super tiring and I don't enjoy it. I really just want to focus on my craft. I'm like, cool. Now we know, just continue crushing it down the technical path. You don't have to. And I think at a high level too, like the thing I keep going back to is what you said earlier about the importance of expectations. And in a way, when I'm thinking about like the recruiting process, the hiring process is one of the biggest competitive advantages other than speed is like making somebody feel valued or important. And even like in looking at this example of a backwards promotion, you setting clear expectations of that behavior and that action makes them feel valued and important because now they have agency in that role and they feel like they're being invested in. And then they, like you said, in the hiring process, they have an opportunity to have a shot and that makes them feel valued and important. Yeah. And it, again, you're going to get all sorts of non-traditional people in those roles because people are allowed to try it. Do you have some examples of when you've removed bias from the interview process or like the proof of work process, uh, the examples of non-traditional candidates you've been able to empower into these different roles? Yeah, I mean, I think people will be surprised at a lot of the leaders that emerged, right? Like 
people who had high school um, diplomas but no university, or people who did uh, history and then they're doing they're now like leading engineering teams. Like there was all there was so many examples of people really rising in impact without have without and if you looked at the resume, actually what the funny joke is that if I sent you some LinkedIn profiles, like they're just blank. Like they don't even have a LinkedIn profile because they're they just didn't care about LinkedIn yet they really crushed it in their roles and and sometimes it was they didn't have any of that in the back and behind them and they really just wanted a shot going forward and there's many many examples of that people and also people going from design into engineering from engineering into product people trying management and coming back into individual contributors like there were so many examples of people kind of moving around because we made it like such low friction um, people changing groups, people changing platforms, like moving from iOS to Android, moving from mobile to backend. Like there were so many examples of that. And you know, the term I think is like expert generalist, right? Not specialist. People became really, really good at a bunch of different things. And uh, there were lots of reasons for that, but one of it is just the low friction of of being surprising. What was the most terrible leadership mistake that you've ever made? It's a good question. I mean, probably most of them had to deal with taking too long to let someone go because either some attachment to a previous level of performance, previous project, probably my own biases. Like usually in these cases, the peer feedback has been clear that the person shouldn't be at the organization um, or they're, they've lost the energy or whatever it is. And I've taken too long to kind of, I mean, the decision has been made, right? What I was trying to think of was like, was like, I don't have to make a decision. The decision has been made by the team. I just haven't executed on it. And that's not something you can give to the team, right? You have to do it. Yeah. So for, if there's somebody who's listening right now who is in a similar position where maybe they're going back and forth of whether or not to, to let someone go, do you have advice for them on yeah. what you would share? So there's a framework I use. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of frameworks around PIPs, like performance improvement plans. But one that I really like to do is you sit down with somebody who's been having a tough time with performance. And what you want to do is get them to a extremely high level performance in a short amount of time. So typically what I do is I give them like a 30 day PIP. And what I'll say is, here's what like great looks like, not good. The problem with most PIPs is that after 30 days of like giving some, a, a, a person a task, it's still kind of unclear, like how, how well they did. You're kind of like, oh, they kind of did half of the thing. Like, like you, you don't get the, the, the clear signal you want after 30 days. So what I would typically do is I would try to figure out what does extremely high performance look like at the end of 30 days? And I would tell them, I'd say, hey, look, kind of had a rough go. Here's what we need you to do in the next 30 days. And we're giving you a shot. Like it's super impactful. It's energizing. It's clear. If you do these things, even people on the team are like, if they can do these things, they 100% should still be here. It should be like, like really hard to do. And what I found is 20% of the people can do it and they will crank it out and they will crush it and they will be like valuable for the long term. 80% of the people won't make it. So they'll be like 20% won't make it. They'll try. And I would say 60% of the people will resign on the spot. Like they'll literally look at the list and go, I can't do this. And they'll, and they'll resign. And what I found with that process is they weren't mad. They, were, they understood because, again, we have this process, right? Typically, it, it might happen in the first 90. It might not happen like, after that. But they might go, you know what? I understand what this is. 
I don't think I can get there in 30 days, which would make it clear that I should stay. I should just resign now. And again, not a bad thing. I've had people come back to me who went through that process, who resigned, and then years later asked me to be a reference for their next job. Like it was totally, it wasn't a bad thing. It was just that they weren't able to kind of uh, hit that level of performance. And they themselves didn't want to like sign up for the challenge, which is a, a good thing, right? Because we both know it's not about any kind of half asset for 30 days, right? So I'm thinking about the impact of that is like the 20% of people that opt into that and crush it. That's a huge career turnaround for them. It like dramatically huge. changes their life. Yeah. And then like with what you're talking about with like the expectations for like the people that opt out of it, like to still have that relationship, like still also is like a, a win-win down the line. Yeah. And, you know, again, to go back to my first job out of school trilogy, I was on a pip within the first six weeks. It's how I really, yeah. It's how I understood about the process and how I, turned myself around. I was like, holy shit, I'm not going to make it. And so I signed up and I, you know, put on the turbochargers. I worked hundred hours a week and I figured out how to make it work. I was like, I need to make this work. That's, I think the world is a better place for that, having that turnaround story. But I think that's exactly <laughs> like, it'll happen to anybody. I mean, there, there have definitely been times in my career where I was not as effective as I should have been. And that just shows you that not every company is right for every person. It's not about the person. It's about potentially the environment plus the person may or may not be a fit for you. So figure that out and find a environment which is conducive to your, your, how you want to work. What is the most inspiring leadership actions you've ever seen or experienced? The action that might be small, but make a big impact. I mean, one, one thing that, that I found really impactful, maybe it's a weird one for this question, but is that we really tried to get away from like cash rewards um, at Extreme, meaning we didn't do bonuses. We tried to do cash rewards. And the thing that I found most impactful was when, whenever we found out, so whenever we wanted to reward somebody, we had, we figured out something that they needed or would wanted, and we just bought it for them. And I saw just the reactions of the people were so like heartfelt because it was a combination of you took the time to figure out something and then you did it. A good example was, I remember one of our designers was going to Brazil for um, a vacation and we bought her flight. Or uh, another, uh, someone in our company was an aspiring DJ and we bought this little like MP3 recorder thing that they could attach to their equipment and it would record their whole DJ set and turn it into an MP3. These are not expensive things, but we figured out what they wanted. I remember uh, one of our engineers was moving into the new house and so we bought them a TV. And there were like these little things where people were like, wow, you really tried to find out, find out about my life and you bought me something that would enhance my life. And I found that people really, really, really resonate with that. And they remember to this day, remember when you bought me this thing? So I think the combination of one was just like diving deep into their, into the finding out about the person and then, and then, and then executing on it, like buying something. And it sounds funny as like a thing that I remember, but it was just that we took the time to do that yeah people really were like wow they really took they took a chance to like find out about my life and, and they, they showed that you care exactly they just give me like a gift card right they really tried to figure this out and i think that those are the moments where people go back and they're like oh yeah i remember that this is like this is like the thing from there and thanks for uh taking time to chat i, I learned a lot and uh, even though we have a few conversations already i can learn new things from me every every time same and like i said 
this is the trick, right? I think I learned a lot from this conversation also, like hearing the questions and the feedback. And I think that's why I like having these conversations. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.